Hey everyone, Tim Kay, host of the Veterans Project Podcast, here to talk to you about our summer 2021 raffle. Now, I get questions all the time about how folks can help the project. Well, here's your big chance. Thanks to our wonderful partners, we have a chance for you to not only help the project throughout this entire next year, but also you can win an incredible prize package in doing so. What if I told you that 50 bucks would grant you the opportunity to not only help the project, but also win a package valued at $45,000? That's right, 45000 bucks. What do I get, Tim? You get a custom Veterans Project Elite Outdoors 16-inch barrel AR-15 chambered in 223 Wild a Leupold Optics Rangefinder RX2800, and a scope as well. These are not bottom-of-the-barrel optics. These aren't just things Leupold Optics had cast aside and handed to us. These are top-of-the-line optics. Grizzly Forge, our friend Lucas O'Hara from Grizzly Forge, is providing us with one of his beautiful blades. Former Army sniper, he'll be on the podcast in the future. We are very thankful to him. We also have a blade from Ronin Tactics. So not one blade, but two blades. This one is from Spartan Blades, and it is a beautiful, beautiful piece. We also have a weapon case for your AR-15 from Pelican, the best in the industry. Uh, they have been an incredible sponsor for us. Pelican is offering one of their gun cases for your Elite Outdoors rifle. Now, the end of the raffle is September 1st, so don't wait around on this. It's a very limited time only, but you have a chance to not only help the project, but win an incredible package in doing so. Head over to thevetsproject.com backslash raffle for more information. Now, we'll provide the links in our description as well. And look, we know that times are tough. Money can be tight. If you don't have the $50 to spend, sharing this raffle helps us a ton. Again, that's thevetsproject.com backslash raffle. You can be a part of helping fund the work for the entire year. Hey everyone, just jumping on here real quick to say that if you didn't listen to part one of this two-part series, part two will be extremely confusing for you. So make sure you listen to part one, not only for continuity purposes, but also because it's just an absolutely incredible episode. Here he is with an education on Mac V. Sog, the legendary Mike Stall. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. And that's the interesting thing, too, is the fact that this was all volunteer. Mm -hmm. Nobody had to take a mission. If, you, if you, you were asked, okay, we got this target area, and we want you to recon that and find a weapons cache, you say, tell, tell the intel officer, hey, I've been in that target area. I don't want to go again. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll get another team. There was, no, there was no sense of shame with that. And the guy could quit, quit running, recon it anytime. If you had enough you could quit. Wow. And it, again, it was, okay, dude, you know, you did your, you did your time in the barrel. But that tells you how dangerous that job was, that yeah. they let you yeah. turn and, that and over. And you got to remember, it was all volunteer. I mean, you had to be a volunteer in the special forces. 
You had to be a volunteer into SOG, and you had a volunteer to run recon because of, of no other reason. When we went in, we went in sterile, meaning we had, didn't have dog tags. We didn't have anything on us that indicated we were U.S. troops. So we were technically spies, and if we got caught there, one of the problems with, with, uh, with dependents back in the States, when we lost guys, their dependents never knew what happened to them. Wow. If we lost a guy in Laos, it was, it was well, he missing in action. We don't know where he was. We wow. Don't, you know, so, yeah. so the families back here never found out what happened to their, their, the guys in Vietnam that got killed in Laos. Uh, but when you go in as a spy, the Geneva Convention, when we got caught, we could actually be executed right there. Most of our guys were. If they weren't, if they got captured, very few guys of our guys were kept prisoner. Mm. Uh, they were executed right there on on wherever they were caught. Did you know guys that were with you in SOG where they didn't make it out? Did you know? Uh, I when I was the intel sergeant, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had teams members didn't come back pretty regularly. Uh, had a I had friends that got killed after I left. Wow. You know, so. Yeah. Uh, but it was, yeah, I mean, that was just what you anticipated. Uh, it was like uh, we had a ritual when uh, somebody else get killed. Uh, There's a song, Old Blue, mm-hmm. and uh, we'd all get around in the bar and we'd sing Old Blue. And there was something about Won't Forget Old Blue. I forget exactly how the song went then. But then every guy that was killed, his name would be spoken. Mm. until you got down to the one that was added to the list. Wow. Uh, and that's the way we celebrated their death, you know, wow. or capture or MIA, whatever. Right. Of course, if they're wounded and you get them out, then, then they'd be in China Beach or the Navy Hospital across the street, and then a whole bunch of guys would go visit them yeah. before, you know. And there were some guys that just get purple hearts and keep going out. I, I got to visit a sergeant major. God only knows how many tours he had in Vietnam. And, I mean, he was like on his, his purple hearts were in the teens. Jeez. <laughs> and they kept trying to get him back, go back to the States, but he was a sergeant major, and you know the power of a sergeant major. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they tell majors what to do sometimes. Right. Uh, he had enough pull that he just stayed in Vietnam running recon. He wow. wanted to be out there in the bush. Wow. Uh, I guess he had a death wish. I don't mm-hmm. know. But, I mean, that's just the kind of the guys that ran recon. But that's why they couldn't make us run a mission, because we were war criminals by our Congress. Mm-hmm. We were going, to, we called it over the fence. We were going over the fence into Laos, Cambodia, or North Vietnam, where Congress said we couldn't go. Wow. So so uh so it couldn't be forced, it had to be volunteer. It, everything was absolutely volunteer, but we all knew the stress of the job. Yeah. And we all knew it's like uh for whatever reason a guy didn't want to go. Now if you refuse too many missions, then it's hey brother, maybe <laughs> maybe you need to get out of recon. We'll give you a desk job for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually fought to get into recon. Wow. When yeah. I got when I got to CCN, I told him I I mean your first briefing is, okay, you go through that door. <laughs> yeah. And they give us a little briefing. Those of you that aren't ready for that, I mean, no, no real information, but 
But, I mean, me and some guys kind of knew what we were in for. And so guys could leave right then. Yeah. But once you went through that door, and again, I don't know if it was true. I have no way of knowing, but it sounded real at the time. They told us that this, this operation is so classified that if you write anything home about it, you know, if there's any breach of security that we find because of the classification, you will be immediately locked up in solitary confinement in Leavenworth without a court-martial. Oh, geez. Because they could not convene enough officers to have a court-martial that had clearance <laughs> to know the stuff we were doing. Wow. So, again, I don't know if that was just to scare us. <laughs> Probably but, effective. But it, it got my attention, <laughs> yeah. okay? But that, I mean, that's the security of the whole thing. Wow. And, and again, like I said, it was so top secret that it had to be voluntary for the guys running recon. Yeah. When when you're getting behind the lines like that and, you know, you've got so much secret stuff going on and you're, you're starting to realize really what's happening yeah. in Vietnam, do you, did you have a... Did you have a feeling of how things were going to go on the ground? Did you feel like overwhelmed by the situation in a lot of ways? Or did, did you feel like it was a winnable war is what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we felt we had the upper hand. We knew it wasn't going to be easy. Yeah. And we knew we were fighting ourselves a lot. Yeah. I mean, there was no no pie in the sky. I mean, we knew with the CIDG, you know, it's, it's like one of the things I got my, from briefing from the, from the Vietnamese Intel Sergeant. When I first got to the A team, he said, he told me, he said, we got three known VC inside the wire. Mm. And I asked, I said, why don't you take them out? He's cause I know who they are. <laughs> right. And, and what I understood was that each one of the VC that was in the wire which would be a real problem if you were being assaulted from the outside. I mean, the intel they could give from the ins what they knew was nothing, right? right yeah. They didn't know where patrols were going or anything like that. But the idea was each one of them had buddies mm. that were with them all the time. Their job was somebody starts hitting the wire, you take him out. Oh, wow. And, and it makes sense, right? Yeah. You know, it's like... It's like if you get a sniper that can't sh hit anybody, leave him alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's true. You yeah. know, yeah. leave the bad guy out there because the guy that replaces him might actually be able to hit something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so we knew yeah. who we were working with. We knew that a lot of the Vietnamese were double agents. We knew the girls that were, and it, it shows it in the Green Beret, that movie with one of the CIG pacing off. And, and they were excellent at indirect fire weapons with them. Really? Yeah. Those rockets, those 122 millimeter rockets, they'd fire them off a bamboo, uh, a bamboo X, Jeez. you know, just two pieces of bamboo tied together. And the rocket made the third leg and wow. they would fire it and hit shit. Wow. Uh, they, they hit our C team once, uh, took out the officer's quarters down by the beach a couple of rounds went into the headquarters. One round went into the sergeant major's hooch. They did nothing with the EM hooches and took out the motor pool. And the way they took out the motor pool, they didn't hit one truck. Did not hit a round in one truck. They put it, all their trucks were parked in a circle facing out. Mm -hmm. And they put rounds in the middle of that circle 
and took out all the trucks. Oh my gosh! <laughs> with wow. the shrapnel going into the the radiators. Oh my gosh! Uh, wow. So what I'm saying, and they had a spotter obviously up in Marble Mountain. Yeah. But uh, we knew that that the girls that were sweeping our hooches out in the daytime and doing our laundry were probably VC. Yeah. Uh, but we just saw that as same same stuff you had, I'm sure, you know, to a certain degree in Iraq with right. the people that you worked for. You knew some of them were working both sides. Yeah. Uh, something they didn't have to worry about in World War II where they had lines. Right. And they didn't have civilians involved so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, makes it a lot harder when the enemy is not wearing a uniform. Oh, yeah. It could be anything from a six-year-old kid to a 90-year-old woman. Mm-hmm. Yes. Quite literally, quite yeah. literally. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I mean, but, uh, my first tour, I was there for Westmoreland's buildup. Mm. Then there was Tet and I was, went back for the Vietnamization, the drawdown and any PFC in Vietnam at that time, we all knew when we leave South Vietnam is going to fall. Yeah. The South Vietnam, South Vietnamese, there was no way they weren't that good of a soldier uh, there was no way they were going to be able to stand against those motivated NBA soldiers. Yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. But that's much like uh, Korea. Yeah. You know, in, in the Korean War, the South Koreans were not good soldiers. Yeah. But after Korea, the rocks turned into some of the baddest mother humpers yeah, in, in Asia. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we had Koreans in uh, that the Koreans defended Cameron Bay. Wow. And they were never messed with. Yeah, really? <laughs> they were, yeah. I wow. mean, they still had the sergeant major. If, if your gig line was a little off, beat you half to death with his, with his horse crop. Wow. <laughs> so They were enforcers. Yeah. <laughs> They're playing. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, so the way, what, sorry. No, you're okay. The, the way, it, way it turned out, you know, was, uh, I'll tell you another thing that happened in that that last mission. Uh, After the spads got there, uh, we had one of the spads roll in and drop cluster bombs. Mm. Okay, And he he was going to drop them right across the area where we had gotten hit from. Uh, And that was all elephant grass, so we never saw anybody, which was almost the rule in Vietnam. I mean, you... Hardly ever saw the enemy. I mean, in the big battles and stuff, but it was there was a lot of fire just came from the tree line, came yeah. from nowhere, out of the out of the elephant grass. So this guy comes in, and he c- came in low below the the hill we were on, and then swooped up over the hill, uh, and dropped his cluster bombs, uh, which I found out were looked like a medicine capsule. You know, something like a Tylenol or something. Not a pill, but a capsule. Uh, it was probably three to four inches long, painted painted bright yellow. Mm-hmm. The reason I know that is my assistant team leader was probably uh, maybe five, six meters away from me at the time. Because he was up, we were both on the side where we were getting the assault from. And we had one of those bomblets bounce in right between us oh wow and it was a dud oh (laughs) (laughs) which was one of the things wrong with those is they had so many duds and that's why why one that's one of the weapons that was rightly banned from warfare 
because even today in Thailand, you know, Laos, I'm not Thailand, but in Laos, Cambodia, people are getting blown up from cluster bomblets that were unexploded, unexploded from the war. But we had a cluster bomb bomblet land right between us, oh and it was gosh. a dud. Wow. <laughs> so fortunate. So uh, you know, we were calling in the airstrikes. We'd see something open up. We'd tell the fact. He'd tell the fast mover. Uh, I started getting really woozy from loss of blood. I was afraid I was going to pass out, so I turned over command of the team to my assistant team leader. And gave him the radio, and uh, I kept signaling our position with the uh, with the mirror signal mirror, so that everybody had know exactly where we were. Because yeah, you, you got new planes coming in, you know, and, and uh, it was really easy for 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 us to be mistaken as the bad guys. Uh, it took them four hours to suppress the anti aircraft enough to get the slicks in there. Jeez, wow! And uh, when the first slick came in. I told, you know, I told the assistant team leader, you know, you leave with so-and-so and so-and-so. And he said, screw you. He said, you gave me the team. You're leaving, which was the right thing to do, mm, you yeah. know, uh, because our attitude was the team leader was the first man in and the last man out. That right. was, that's what we did. So I was going to be the last man out, but it would have been a dumb decision to leave a wounded guy that couldn't keep fighting there. Right. And, and so, uh. So the guy that got shot through the belly, Sergeant Cunning, uh, actually turned out to be not a bad wound at all. It had opened up the skin, and his guts fell out. But when he got back to the mash, we actually had mashes in Vietnam, like mash. Uh, when he the got show. back, it was like clean him up a little bit and put a couple of stitches in him, wow. stuff, stuff his guts back in. <laughs> Luckily, no internal organs were hurt. I actually ended up worse than he was. But uh, they came in and got the two of us out first. And uh, uh, even then, I ran ahead to the chopper because the uh, crew chief and uh, it was, uh, I don't know who was with them, uh, came out with a stretcher and took him there. And I ran ahead to help him get the stretcher and jumped into the bird, the Huey, but it had the, the rope ladders, which were actually aluminum and, and aircraft cable. Uh, they were rolled up two of them on the floor of the of the of the Huey because we sometimes extracted for ladders so they had to be rigged with ladders and and strings the ropes they dropped to us for extraction is that is that gonna be a problem yeah I'm gonna hold you just for a second okay I, know, I just don't want anybody to miss out on that yeah, yeah we're good. good to go yep okay uh so I ran ahead and jumped in and uh, they're trying to put the stretcher in. And you know Army stretcher's got the legs. Yes. You know, it folds up and it's got the legs. Well, they couldn't slide the stretcher in because the legs were, I mean, it's making a, a, a roll, probably two feet roll of ladder there. And they couldn't get the legs over. And I was inside trying to help them. My right hand could trip the handle, but I was trying to grip the, I still hadn't got used to the fact that my left hand was totally useless. Yeah. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't help them get them in. And so one of the guys had to come into the chopper and we got them in and they flew us back to Quang Tree to the mash back there. Uh, that's all I knew. I mean, I had my surgery and I woke up there and I woke up in China beach where they came in and debriefed me and brought in the the radio handset and the beeper to show me and 
and told me about the the tank you know what they had the tanks and the the trucks and you know i debriefed me so i told him my what i experienced there uh years again later again after vietnam i got in touch with captain Carell, who got out of the army and became a baptist preacher now i'm catching it a little bit more the same. Oh, this, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, 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 now yeah. you're hearing it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, more so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. I shouldn't have called your attention. Yeah, I did. <laughs> well, what's funny is I, before, I think you were moving less, but because you were describing the litter action. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That's, yeah. yeah, yeah. My, my, my nonverbals are getting yeah. in the way. I'll uh, sit on my hand. <laughs> yeah, but so, uh, so I, I got in touch, and, and uh, first I talked to his brother who, uh, had knew nothing about what Carell did in Vietnam. So he was very happy to listen to me about what his brother had gone through. But when I talked to Carell, uh, when the next slick came in to get them, uh, Charlie knew what was going on mm. and were ready for him. Uh, as they, as the rest of my team were loading into that Huey, they got the windshield shot out. <laughs> Oh, wow. So they got to fly back all the way with no windshield. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. But at this point, I want to give a shout-out to our chopper crews. Yeah. I see, oh, my God. Whenever I see, you know, an old vet wearing, he was a Huey pilot or crew yeah. member, I'd kiss them suckers right on the lips. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what what they did for us, I can all, I've described it to people. You could have a team in trouble. Mm -hmm. slick coming in to get him one of the guys could take a round right through his head and blow his head off that other pilot would keep coming in yeah. and they, they got a plexiglass windshield mm -hmm. nothing to stop rounds anywhere unless they were sitting on a flak jacket the helmets they were again just plastic so they had no protection whatsoever they got a couple of guys on each side with M60s, but when you're flying in, if you're, I mean, every one of those guys should have should have got a, a distinguished flying cross just for just for coming to get us. Some of the bravest suckers in Vietnam, and I don't think they get the credit they deserve. Yeah, I got to go up in uh, Huey uh, probably about a year ago with the Vietnam pilot mm -hmm. who'd flown it, and it was actually his craft. Yeah, yeah. He had, he had bought it mm -hmm. when he, had, you know, he'd started several successful companies and eventually bought that yeah. helicopter. It still had the holes in it, like some of the. Holes. Yeah. He took this thing up with us and said, "You know, I'm going to show you what I'm going to show you what one of these flights, what a what an infill and extract is like." Uh -huh. I my stomach was through my throat. <laughs> I'd never felt anything like that in my yeah. life, and I still have not. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, they drop into holes for us, little yeah. LZs. They drop in where the rotors are hitting hitting the treetops oh when we go in. Wow. Uh, yeah, those guys were fearless. Yeah. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> so yeah. So anyway, uh, and. Corral, he became, like I said, the uh, the uh, team leader for MLT2, Mobile Launch Team 2, which the, which is where I started okay. uh, run, you know, when I first got to Vietnam. Uh, and, uh, so, and he told me also that they closed that target area after they got us out because it was just too hot to put another team in. Wow. So, uh, so that that is, I, I've been living on borrowed time since August 8th. 1970 
Wow. Which is interesting. You know, we talk about this weird stuff. My first tour, I de-roast on August 8th. Wow. <laughs> My second tour, I was supposed to de-roast about... Let me get it too far. Yeah, there you go. Okay. On my second tour, I was supposed to de-roast, I think it was on the 20th. And uh, that captain, we weren't supposed to run missions when we're 30, 30 days short. Because you know, start getting short, all of a sudden you start worrying more about getting home and you start making mistakes. Right, complacency. So, yeah, I mean, it's just you start worrying too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at any time, a guy could quit. But 30 days short, no more missions. I was almost two weeks short when they called me in because I had already been briefed on this mission, was ready to insert out of Camp Eagle, uh, different guys, uh, and I got food poisoning. Uh, had a good meal. Uh, I know. I remember it was barbecued spare ribs at the 101st uh, Airborne Mess Hall mm-hmm. and got food poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting there trying to get over the food poisoning. Not sitting in the, well, I was sitting in the outhouse a lot <laughs> trying to get over the food poisoning. As I started to get well enough to think about going in, the weather closed in. They scrubbed the mission. So, uh, so I was getting short, thought I was going to have to run anymore. And that's when I, I told you earlier, we had a captain uh, that didn't even have jump wings that mm. took over Recon Company. And I got called in and told, I, they wanted me to run that mission. And I said, well, respectfully, sir, I've only got a couple of weeks to go, and I don't need to run any missions. He Sergeant Stahl, he said, you either run this mission or you and your men will be down on the beach for the rest of the time you're here filling sandbags. Well, well that got me pissed. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> uh, I'll run your fucking mission. Yeah. <laughs> so, so really, I shouldn't have been on it. And, yeah. uh uh, so I got wounded on the 8th of August, the same day that I derose two years earlier. Jeez. And my uh, my uh, derose orders followed me to the hospital. They were dated the 9th of August. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. So if, I, if I'd if i gotten two more weeks out of Vietnam, I uh, I would have got home without getting wounded. Oh, man. What what brought you over to Mac VSOC? Because obviously your first tour over there, you were, you know, Conventional Green Berets, right? Yeah, conventional yeah, Green conventional Berets. Conventional yeah. as you can be. Yeah. Um, well, well, I had met some CNCers. It was, they they were like uh, just up the beach from us. Okay. They had a compound almost right under Marble Mountain. And at that time, there was an open field between them and us. We actually made a Hollywood jump there when I was there. Wow. Uh, and when I was there with Company C, they came through. Anybody want to make a jump? You know, I'll do it. I'll do it. So we went down to the dang airport, boarded a one of the old caribous, and we made a, a jump heading towards the beach. If we'd missed the drop zone, we were all drowned in the South oh China gosh. Sea. And later on, that became a POL and a POW area in there. And Company C was right next to the uh, Marine Air Base. Okay. Their runway ended right at our common fence. And that was the big thing. They used to get rocketed and mortared all the time. We didn't. So that night they, rock- they mortared us was a big surprise. But anyway, uh, we go into Da Nang on stand down, and somehow I got hooked up where it was approved for me to go to the CNC safe house. It was how we called it House 22, which was in, in Da Nang. It was a French villa downtown someplace in a residential area. 
the whole area was off limits because the Marines were in control. All of I-Corps uh, was off limits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marines couldn't go anywhere, which included the Army. We could go to the, you know, the PX or anything on base, but we couldn't just pull in someplace and there were no PX girls to speak of, right. except at House 22, where they had a bar. And it was like a CIA safe house, hmm. except for the bar downstairs. But upstairs was big rooms with bunks in it so that if teams were coming through, they could lay over there. I have no idea why they had it there, because FOB 4, Mar Mountain, was right down the... But anyway, mm-hmm. I got to go over there on a regular basis... And especially when I when I moved into uh, the C team as the CA uh, NCO, but I knew they were super spooks. That's all I knew. And yeah. uh, in Vietnam, that's one of the things the uh, the regular army they called us spooks. Uh, they had some other names for us too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, I knew they were doing the kind of thing I thought I wanted to do. So uh, when I volunteered to go back to Vietnam, it was the intent of going up to CNC North. Uh, and they were at that time too, because of the the drawdown. There was a lot of SF guys at that time. It was just qualification, like like airborne. Hmm. Uh, so. It didn't mean it meant just like if you had jump wings didn't mean you were going to be assigned to an airborne unit, just because you had were special forces qualified, which all that got us was the S at the end of the MOS. I'm sure you guys have that same system. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my last MOS was 11F4S05 hmm. uh, with the uh, language designator on the very end, okay. if I remember it right. Uh, but we didn't have the tabs. We weren't a branch. So near the end of the war, when I went over, or near the end of the war, the Vietnamization, when I went over in 69, uh, I went through Fort Lewis. I got the, the scuttlebutt was a lot of SFers getting into Cameron Bay were being sent to leg outfits, regular units. Mm. And uh, I had already made up my mind that was not going to happen to me because I'd <laughs> been there before. Yeah. So I knew if I got into Quang Tr- uh, Cameron Bay, I would get to get to Natrang where Fifth Group was. I mean, if they signed me to some leg outfit, I'd steal a jeep. <laughs> when, <laughs> yeah. You know, whatever it took, I'd find some chopper. Because again, uh, the bray was magic in Vietnam. Yeah. You walked around with a bray, and you could do just about anything you wanted to. Uh, pilots respected us. I mean, we got hops anywhere we wanted to go. Mm. Uh, so anyway, I knew I'd get to Natrang, but I did. I got to, I got to, didn't have any trouble. I got to Natrang. First thing I did is walked into personnel. I said, I want assignment to CNC North uh, because I'd been in Vietnam before. I had combat experience and I had already earned one silver star. They let me go. And I got, went through the process getting into CNC North. And I'm telling you about the little intel briefing and stuff. Got in there and says, I want to run recon. Uh, well, they needed an intel sergeant up at Quang Tri at the launch site. And uh, so they said, well, how about going up there and be the intel sergeant for a while? And as soon as we get somebody to replace you, we'll bring you down to do recon and we'll send somebody to replace you. You know what they used to say in the Army about don't tell anybody you know how to type? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't know how to type, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't take typing in school. I'd never typed anything in my life. 
Uh, but I was a good intel sergeant. Mm-hmm. And when teams had come in, uh, I always did the IIS, the immediate intelligence summary, you know, any actionable intel. Debrief the teams for that. I also briefed the helicopter crews because when they'd come to us, they didn't know what was going on. Right. They didn't get briefed till they got to me. And as the intel sergeant, I gave the chopper crews the briefing of where they were going and what they were going to be doing. And then uh, I did the debrief of the teams when they came in. Uh, sometimes, because of transportation or weather, the team would have to stay over for a while. The old intel sergeant didn't do crap. He, he did his IIS and nothing else. What is an IIS? Immediate intelligence summary. Okay. That actionable intel. Mm. You know, not the full nine yards of what happened, but, yeah, we saw an ammo dump right here, okay? That goes right away. Uh, I actually started doing the after-action reports, and I debriefed each team member separately, two or three. It wasn't always three, sometimes two Americans. One American go in by himself. When I was running a team, if I got a mission, I could say, well, I'm going to go in and I'm going to take two brew with me. Mm. Wow. I decided what I was going to do, how I was going to do it. Yeah. And if, if the old man, if Colonel Donahue said, no, that doesn't sound good. Okay. I'm not going to take the mission, get somebody else. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, when the teams had come back, I'd debrief them one man at a time. It was it was like uh, they'd pick. There'd be a target area, and uh, for a while I was working. We didn't really have a title. I, I decided on the title the team liaison sergeant. Uh, when I got to CCN, I wanted to run recon, uh, but they needed an intel sergeant up at Quang Tree, so I took that job. I was doing such a good job, they didn't want me to leave. And I kept raising hell. I keep, you know, telling them, hey, you promised me, you promised me. So finally they took me down to FOB4 in Da Nang, FOB4 uh, Marble Mountain, and put me in the Tactical Operations Center. And what I was doing there was kind of like I did before when the team had come back. I'd do the after-action reports. The immediate intelligence summary would still have been done at the launch site. And I wrote really good after-action reports. But I would also, when a team would get to get a mission, I would help liaise get them the supplies. I want to make sure everything they needed was together. Uh, and it was only after that, raising hell again, that I needed to, I wanted to run recon, that I actually got to run recon so i it's only the last couple of months i was there that i actually got to run recon but the way the way they worked it was all volunteer okay everybody uh, especially those that that ran recon uh somebody somewhere would decide why a mission needed to run for example at one point while i was still on the launch team the air force B-52s flying like at 30,000 feet, normally well above the fray, started taking flak. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they didn't like that. I mean, they're flying over Laos, bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and uh, they're not used to anti-aircraft fire down that far. It wasn't like Saigon, uh, Hanoi or anything where, you know, the most concentration of anti-aircraft fire anywhere in the world in any war was around Hanoi. So they, these B-52 bombers are flying along, and they started firing, getting flak. 
which had to be coming from a hundred millimeter in an aircraft gun. Uh, so we sent a team in to find that gun. That would be an example of a mission that, that might come down uh, that was a planned mission. So they would, that would be a target area and an objective, and somebody in operations would decide what team was going to take that in the sense of who'd been out last and that sort of thing. But the team leader would be approached and say, this is the target area. This is what we want you to do. Will you take this mission? Wow. Okay, not you are going to take this mission. May not have said that, but that was, you know, and generally, Implied. yeah, every, every, I can't, I don't know of anybody personally that ever declined a mission, but for any reason, for no reason, uh, I just don't feel like taking that mission. Team leader could refuse it. If he accepted the mission, then it was his mission. He decided how it was going to be run. I mean, the logistics of inserting stuff, he had no control over because depending on who you could get aircraft from. Uh, for example, one mission I was inserted with CH-47. Uh, most of the time we used Hueys, Hueys. And I got extracted on that mission with CH-46s from the Marine Corps. We came out on strings. But the thing was that when I got a mission, when I accepted a mission, I could say, okay, I'm going to run this by myself. I'm going to go in solo because some guys would do that because one guy can sneak around a lot better than seven guys. But if you get caught, <laughs> seven guys are a little better for the firepower. I'm going to take two Americans and two Vietnamese or two brew, whatever. And this is what I'm going to, this is my plan. Uh, there would be a brief back where you would stand in front of the colonel and the, you know, the other uh, staff officers at CCN and say, okay, this is my plan. They could approve it, say, okay, do that. Or if they said, we don't like that plan, say, I'm not going to do the mission then. And it, so for the team leader, even if he was a spec five and we had spec five E5 team leaders, he had that kind of power. Wow. Which is, I mean, there's no place else in the military I can think of where that would happen. No, there is no place. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like yeah. I said, you know, uh, rank had nothing to do with it. If you, uh, if, you know, it was experience over rank, which actually makes a lot more sense than yeah. having some, I mean, on the A team, I, I don't know, I broke in four lieutenants that came in green and I did a lot of the operations out of the A-team because I was the most expendable away from the A-team. Uh, my job, especially when I was working S-5, uh, I didn't have to be there all the time. A combo man's important. Your medics are important. Uh, weaponsmen can run, you know, run patrols. Uh, but I just, I liked being out in the field, so I did a lot more of the operations, and I, like I said, I broke a lot of the newbies in, especially the officers. Uh, but in that case, uh, the officers was technically, even if he was green, the officer technically was the lead. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had uh, three officers that either implied or one actually said to me, first operation out, we're at the gate, ready to go out, uh, on a, you know, just a 
regular just a security sweep. Normally, we didn't have any trouble. And he said to me, he said, look at Sergeant Stahl. And he says, I realize I've got the rank. And again, I don't know the exact words. I'm not quoting. And he said, but he said, when we get outside this gate, you tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, my feeling was at that time, now, this is going to be a good officer. Yeah. You know, and I only had one officer come in that kind of thought he was Patton. You know, he, he was young and inexperienced and uh, just a hard guy to work with mm-hmm. because of kind of arrogant, you know, wearing the beret, uh, wore his rank around. I mean, I worked for him. He became our CA officer, and I was the CA NCO, so I had to work with him a lot, although I had a lot of independence. I I had so much fun on the A-team leaving the compound and going out and doing stupid stuff, getting trucks stuck out in the boonies and stuff. But yeah. uh, one day we took a, a whole truck, deuce and a half load of rice into the Ville to distribute. And uh, when we stopped... And of course, the Vietnamese are unloading these hundred-pound sacks of rice. I hunkered down next to one of the tires, you know, of the deuce and a half. Uh, guy was name was Lieutenant Scally. I looked up and he was standing up on the truck on the pile of rice packs with his hands on his hips and his legs spread apart, supervising with his rank. <laughs> On oh the outside, <laughs> and my that was one of the first experiences I had with him. And I said, "All right, Lieutenant Scally, I know I'm gonna get at least one warning shot if there's a sniper out there." <laughs> wow! But I mean, the good officers—I think anywhere in the military, the best officers are the ones that take let the the experienced NCOs be their guide. So what? What was that like for you in coming back? And, and, you know, you obviously didn't get out of the military the way that you wanted to. I was a lifer, yeah. And I had a good career going. I mean, with the, you know, the decorations and, and I got made it to E7 uh, in seven years. So, you know, I in special, special operations. Uh, Delta was formed out of MACV. I mean, we were the first JSOC, really. And even the MACV patch, you can see, has got the got an anchor on it, and the Air Force wings, and the Green Beret. We didn't work a lot with Marines, but we used Marine air support choppers a lot of time for inserts. Uh, so, uh, so we were really the first JSOC, although you know, Joint Special Operations Command but not identified as such. So after Vietnam, it was a lot of the guys that came out of SOG that formed Delta, and uh, actually uh, our training was, was, our experiences were turned into training for Rangers, SEALs, a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I don't know where I would have been. Uh, my orders, uh, that my normal DROS orders just sent me back to Bragg to the Centers for Special Warfare, um, I don't know if they would have made me an instructor or, you know, or if, if I would have gone some special place, Yeah, never know that now, but yeah, I was a lifer, uh, and w- would have had a good career starting out of parachute rigor being, being a trilingual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but so that, that just slammed my career, uh, did that affect your psychology a lot, sitting in the hospital like that? And... Uh, yeah. Uh, let me tell you, uh, I was went to the Mash at Quang Tri, where they uh, 
did the, the they call it debridement where they take out the all the damaged tissue. Uh, from there, I was sent to China Beach in Da Nang, and oh, I'm, that's okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm just I'm, yeah. I'm doing it for you. Okay, yeah. uh, went to China Beach. I think they made a TV series about China Beach a while ago. Uh, from there, I was medevaced to Japan, and it wasn't until Japan that I got stitched up. Uh, they liked to do that because they weren't sure of the sterile field in Vietnam, where in Japan it was very clean. Hmm. Uh, and I was act my my stitches were were wire, okay. wow. <laughs> because I had so much meat move removed from my tricep. From there, I was sent to Walter Reed, and uh, that was a long flight on a C one forty one. I had I could have gone uh, ambulatory or not. If I'd gone not, I would have been in a in a like a stretcher flying. But I wanted to go ambulatory, so I was in green, sitting in a seat. Of course, you sit backwards in a military plane. Uh, the trick there was, uh, they were giving me Darvon for pain. I had a lot of pain. Uh, cold made me hurt like crazy. And the C-141 at altitude is cold as, it's, it's not as comfy as a 747. Uh, so I eat all my Darvon up about halfway back to the States. Oh <laughs> so, so, uh, we dropped off some guys at the, at a Navy hospital in Chicago. I remember touching down there. Then we went to uh, Andrews, landed there where they took me to uh, Walter Reed. When we were processing in there, they forgot about me. It oh. was kind of weird. I mean, there was, we were sitting in, a, in an office area and chairs along the wall. A whole bunch of us are calling names up. Guys are going to clerks and getting sent awards and stuff. Everybody gone, and I'm still sitting there. Nobody called my name. Mm. And I was hurting like a bitch, boy. I hadn't had any pain meds in forever. I went up to a clerk and said, hey, what about me? What had happened was, you know, when, when you put files, stack them up, and one end is fatter than the other, mm -hmm. my records had slid off behind a desk. Oh, geez. Uh, but, wow. But uh, Walter Reed was an experience. Anybody, politicians, anybody that can send boys to war, men to war, should have to go through a military hospital. Mm. Should have to. Yeah. Uh, it was. I agree. It was an awakening. We had a ward there with crash and burn guys that was a closed ward. Even even their relatives could not go in that ward because they were such messes. Jeez. Uh, see, and, and there was a lot of sense of humor. Guys used to race around in their uh, wheelchairs. I mean, there were a lot of ramps. And you had to be really careful walking around that you didn't run into a couple of guys coming down the ramp racing in their wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was in, in being there was kind of boring because I had physical therapy every morning. Yeah, uh, there wasn't anything they could really do for me. Yeah, uh, except keep my hand from clawing up. So, so I had to go through physical therapy every morning and some other I, EMG electromyelograph. Not a fun thing to do where you have long needles shoved in your arm and then they shoot electricity through it. Oh Two things none of us really like, needles no. and electricity. Yeah. Uh, but that was to check whether, whether the nerves were working or not. And I wasn't really there very long. Uh, but at that time, things hadn't gotten real bad for us yet. And those of us that were healthy enough got to have field trips. Uh, 
I got to go to the White House for Thanksgiving dinner in 19, that would have been 1970, met President Nixon, his wife, Mamie wow. Eisenhower, and I think it was Nixon's daughter, Patricia. When, when we had the dinner, uh, Nixon wasn't real popular with us, although he was still our commander-in-chief, and, mm-hmm. but he had stopped the bombing. He'd done some other things we weren't happy about. All the waiters were packing. <laughs> you could really? see, yeah, wow. they were probably Secret Service because you can tell under their waiter coats. They wow. they were all packing in, in there. I actually got to sit at a table right next to Mamie Eisenhower for Thanksgiving dinner, which was cool for me because uh, General Eisenhower was my first president that I was aware of as a kid. I remember the... Uh, the campaign, and when he had his heart attack, I sent him a goodwill card. He was at Fitzsimmons in Denver. Denver is where he is recovering. And I got a thank you card back <clears throat> from the White House. It just the return address was the White House. Wow. Uh, That's so pretty I, cool. So I was very young, but to, to actually meet Mamie Eisenhower, of course, of course, Ike had died. That was that was just awesome. Wow. And so we had dinner, and Nixon made a little speech, and then we had entertainment. It was a group called the Spurlows. Uh, got to go to a, a Christmas party in the, under the uh, uh, con- in con- Congress, the basement there. They had a big Christmas party for us, uh, which was very nice. They, they had uh, flowing sh- fountains of flowing champagne and beer. And uh, the secretaries, the other the other girls that worked around there for the senators, they were the hostesses. Uh, so you know, we there was dancing going on, and that's that's where I met General Westmoreland, where I made a ass out of myself. Uh, <laughs> How did you do that? Uh, well, I saw him crossing the dance floor, and th- this girl I was talking to, I mean, just you know, just good company. Uh, I said, "Wow, there's General Westmoreland." She didn't know who the heck he was. And I said, you know, I served under him in Vietnam. What a great guy he was. She said, well, you ought to go up and talk to him. She had no idea that an E-7 does not walk up to a four-star general <laughs> and just... and uh, But I'd had quite a bit of champagne. Because uh, oh instead of the little plastic champagne glasses, what we all did was get a big glass of beer, drink that, and then use that at the champagne fountain. <laughs> uh, you truly were a professional army. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we knew how to drink back then. But uh, so I, I was a little tipsy, let's say, and uh, she said, oh, you got to meet him. You're going to have to talk to him. And she took my hand and kind of dragged me up there. Yeah, so I said, you know, I don't remember something like General Westmoreland, this, this man served under you. So kind of introducing me and... I'm sure he, you know, I was in green, so I had my decorations and patches and stuff on, so uh, he knew I was Special Forces, and General Westmoreland loved and knew how to use Special Forces. He was he was a very good general for Vietnam. So I'm talking, to, just chatting with him just a little bit, and I talked about what it was, what an honor it was to serve under him, what a good general I thought it, thought he was. But I ended up at saying, not like that asshole, General Abrams. Because <laughs> oh, no. I served under Abrams my second tour, uh, oh and he was. Yeah. I mean, he was yeah. an armor guy. He hated special operations, special forces. He was truly regular army. And, and nobody in regular army liked special forces back then. We were just too maverick. 
Uh, it could ruin an officer's career to spend too much time in special forces. Wow. Uh, so, uh, and Abrams, like I said, did not like us and we didn't like him. And when that came out, I thought, Jesus Christ, I just dissed one four-star four general in front of another one. Oh my God. And he kind of chuckled. And, and I got his autograph. There was We had uh, uh, programs there. There was Christmas carols and stuff there. And tore off a little piece of that and he signed Westy for me mm. so that was one of my treasures is to have Westy's signature <laughs> uh, sounds I, like he re, sounded like he reacted pretty well to it oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well he knew I was special forces so yeah <laughs> he's gonna be he cool. could expect anything you know yeah. I could run up there nude and I would have <laughs> surprised him uh but uh they flew us down uh, to uh uh Goldsboro South Carolina I think it was Goldsboro, anyway, a uh, bunch of us flew down there. There was an air base there, and they flew a C-47 up to get us. That was tricked out like the DC-3, flew us down there and had a weekend. I think that was probably Veterans Day weekend, where the whole town celebrated us. They had a parade, uh, got newspaper pictures. We're all sitting along in chairs. Uh, I didn't realize how depressed I was until I saw that picture where I'm all leaning over. And if you count the heads and then count the feet, you'll find out it doesn't. There's not two to one. Mm -hmm. And but they had a parade for us, a little parade. Then they had a pig picking, which was you know like a barbecue at night, and uh, did some other stuff. And they were talking about it was moonshine capital of that area, and it was the. Uh, the mayor and the publisher of the newspaper that was mostly uh, taking us around. So when we were leaving uh, back at the airport, at the airbase, boarding the, uh, the C-47, uh, the mayor was there handing out bottles of moonshine as we got on the plane. I had a field trip up to uh, New Jersey to Atlantic City where they took us up there. It was a VFW or something that sponsored a weekend for us up there. They had a dance. Uh, and that's when people were really cool. I can remember at that dance, there was one guy there that was a double amputee uh, below the, just below the knees, and he was in a wheelchair. And uh, I don't know where the girls came from, but again, it was local girls. were hostesses, you know, all very just up and up just they danced with us or whatever and uh one of the girls uh, went up to this guy and with double amputee he says you're gonna dance with me and he looked down in his legs he said i can't dance with you yes you can she got him out of the chair and she got down on her knees and danced wow. with him wow and the young kid on the bus, I remember when we first got there, we were parked outside the, the hotel. And somebody went in to get a room and assignment stuff. And people are walking by and sort of gawking at us. Well, he's a young kid. I think he was about 18. He didn't serve very long in Vietnam. He got his right foot blown off. And it was all bandaged up. So he leaned back and started waving at people with his stub. <laughs> uh, I was the only SF guy there. Yeah. And we had uh, the highway patrol was kind of looking after us. And uh, one, I think he was a captain, whatever, but he had his own car. And he drove me up and down the boardwalk. Uh, anywhere we wanted to go, there was a wrestling match going on. He took me into, and it was really cool, you know. Then we went out on the highway, and, and they showed me how to use the radar <laughs> for the speeders and stuff. 
So it w- it was a time when you felt honored to be a veteran. Yeah. And then I got home. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, they sent me home early to await retirement orders. Uh, so I got home, you know, I think it was just before Christmas or around Christmas time, and that did not go well. Uh, that was when things got really bad uh, for us. And uh, I had uh, nephews that had served in Vietnam. Two of my nephews served in Vietnam. We were all about the same age, strangely enough. And I had a nephew served in the subservice in the Navy about that time, and another nephew, they were all brothers, he served in Korea. We were all home at about the same time. My one nephew uh, had actually earned the Distinguished Flying Cross, flying a, a C-47 up in I Corps, rescuing some Marines, getting some Marines out. We never talked about Vietnam. Mm. Uh, never. Wow. Uh, Why was that? It was a taboo topic. Nobody talked about Vietnam. By then, it was shameful to be a Vietnam veteran. Uh, when I started, I started junior college uh, that summer semester, and uh, remember that was after Kent State and stuff. And I found very quickly that to identify myself as a veteran uh, was was I used to say that that I would have been better accepted if I said I was a paroled child molester. Wow! Uh, it was that bad. Jeez. Uh, uh, just couldn't talk about it. Mm. And, and so there was no catharsis for us, you know, the, you know, even veterans talking to veterans, what I'm saying is we didn't talk to each other and you sure as heck didn't talk to civilians about it. Of course, my last tour wasn't declassified until 1995. So I couldn't have talked about anything about that technically. Uh, and, uh, it was just not a good time for veterans. Yeah. And one of the things I, we determined in my counseling, uh, one of the things that caused us problems, we have these things called rites of passage. Uh, every society has them for their people. You know, birthday, uh, religious ceremonies, baptism, confirmation, these rites of passage. Every culture has them. For a military guy, when I was in, you went to retirement ceremonies, right? Some guy is finally getting out. You have a big formation. He's up in front and whatever, right? I, I got on a plane leaving uh, D.C., flew to, flew to Florida, got off the plane. That was my homecoming. When wow. I came back the first time, we went into, uh, what is it, outside of Frisco? Is it Travis? Well, there's an air base outside of Frisco anywhere. Anyway, they flew us into there, issued us a set of greens because we flew in in our jungle fatigues. We got issued a set of greens, went through that whole thing again, every, all the stripes and everything, whatever went on the uniform, uh, took us out to the bus stop outside the base where we got a bus into San Francisco where we boarded a plane to where we're going from the, from San Francisco Airport. That was our transition coming home. Mm-hmm. So it was like you could be in heated combat one day and three days later be back in the States wow. with, with nothing else, you know. So, And without that catharsis, without those rites of passage, it was like very, it was like surrealistic. And when I started college, hippie was big, you know, the guys with the long hair. So I became the best hippie in the world you know, mm. to fit in. 
And uh, it wasn't until about 1985 or so with the fall of Saigon that Vietnam veterans started coming out of the closet a little bit. Hmm. Uh, and then it wasn't really till after 2000 that that I really got around to. As a matter of fact, I sh- uh, uh, the book I just showed you after I talked the Mac V Sog uh, team histories by Jason Hardy. It was after talking to him, uh, and I also found out that. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, the guy had written the book about SOG, uh, Major Plaster. Okay. Uh, uh, Major Plaster wrote the first book on, on SOG after we were declassified. Uh, my, my, my Navy friend, the lieutenant commander, sent me that book. I didn't even know it was, was available. Is when I started feeling comfortable telling my stories and that for anybody that would listen and pretty much took on the persona of Vietnam veteran. That's mm-hmm. all I was. Uh, but uh, was it hard for that? Was it hard to get lost in that? In in finally, you now have this sense of pride that you're allowed to show. Uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, after so many years of hiding it, uh, there's something in psychology. It's it's not used anymore. The term means something totally different then. But there was a, was a condition in psychology we called bad boy syndrome. Mm-hmm. And what that comes from is you got a kid, say you have a couple of kids in a family, and one of the kids, the parent or parents or the dad, constantly tells that kid, you're bad, you're not doing it right, you're a bad person. That bad boy syndrome takes on that persona. Well, if everybody's saying I'm bad, I'm going to do bad things. And they think of themselves as bad, even if they're doing good things. Vietnam veterans went through over a decade of being being treated like crap. Mm-hmm. Right? I went to work for the post office for a while. I got a few extra points for being a veteran, but I was a good employee. And I had postal employees tell me the only reason I got that job is because I was a veteran. It's like they held it against me. Mm, wow. Okay. And and going to job interviews, couldn't mention, couldn't put on my resume that I was a veteran. I never would have got a job if I'd put on my military experience. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I, I was trilingual at the time. I spoke, still spoke Arabic and German uh, and was quite capable of doing just about anything but couldn't get a job if they knew I was a veteran. So a lot of us internalize that thing. And today, to to this very day, I don't feel likable. If I walk into a group of people, my assumption, even with veterans, my assumption, these people aren't going to like me. Wow. It's that psychological thing after so many years. And, and, uh, and, and then it got to be sort of an in-your-face thing with civilians, you know. Yeah. It's like Vietnam veteran and damn proud of it in your face. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of anger comes out of that, a lot of anger. Anger comes out of being in combat. But uh, now it's 75, you know, last couple of years I've been in serious PTSD counseling again with a really good guy 
uh, retired master sergeant who was administratively assigned to the 10th Special Forces at Fort Carson. So I had a respect for Special Forces, and, and uh, he really liked the fact that I was a rigger. He thought that was the most awesome thing to be in the Army. <laughs> but he did a lot of good work with me. Uh, he actually saved my life because I've got several suicide attempts and ideations. I've been hospitalized so many times, and somebody asked me, I have to think about how many times I've been in the hospital. Uh, seems like the one thing I'm not good at is killing myself. <laughs> Okay, but working with him, finally, those suicide ideations went away. And uh, so, um, but what the determination was is I don't have PTSD from combat anymore. I have PTSD from the way we were treated when I got home. Wow. I have a general anger at people in general, you know, and, and the rage is there not only for me, but for all veterans, you know, because I'm still, you know, I, it's still the buddy in the foxhole thing for me. Just because I left the Army doesn't mean I'm not looking out after it. Uh, the VA treated Vietnam veterans like crap. Our treatment was really bad. Uh, as an example, the first statistics I heard about suicide, we're talking about Vietnam veteran suicides when that started to be talked about, 22 a day. Uh, the last statistics I heard for a while, it was up to 24. Now it's back to 22 a day. Uh, my God, haven't we learned anything in 50 years? Yes, we have, but the VA hasn't. Mm. Uh, the VA actually, I think you could prove statistically, if you could actually get the records from them, there are 40 to 45 veterans a day that die because of medical malfeasance of the VA. Mm -hmm. Through suicide, through not getting appointments, delayed treatments, people getting cancer, not being able to get the treatment in time because they're shuffled around. Uh, myself, I tell people literally, not hyperbole, literally, really, I am alive today in spite of not because of the VA healthcare system. Wow. I mean, when I, with PTSD, all they wanted to do was throw a bunch of drugs at me. You know, I got my counseling through the old vet center with Vietnam veterans helping Vietnam veterans. That's crap now because it's been taken over by the VA mm. uh, because of funding or whatever. Uh, had lots of minor problems, relatively minor problems, but quality of life problems. Uh, like being able to breathe, you know, mm -hmm. having serious problems breathing. Uh, couldn't get in to, a, to an ENT guy. You know, they'd, they'd give me some Flonase or something and send me home. Uh, had serious hemorrhoid problems, serious hemorrhoid problems. Uh, going through school, uh, if you can imagine trying to sit in a master's level class, feeling like you got a boar brush stuck up your butt. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so this quality of Jeez. life stuff, constantly going in for help, uh, having them give me things like preparation H. And I even had a doctor tell me my hemorrhoids had hemorrhoids. Okay? Wow. It wasn't until I got out of the VA and got into my Medicare TRICARE thing that I actually had a doctor do surgery on my hemorrhoids and remove the problem. And actually got a doctor. I had major surgery just recently, a couple of years ago, to fix my nose problem. 
Mm-hmm. And and VA doctor told me I was addicted to Afrin, just quit using Afrin without even examining me. Wow. Okay. I can tell you story after story after story about medical malfeasance with the VA. And my my philosophy has become if it, the, the VA employees are of two types, they're either incompetent or in, complacent to the incompetency of others. Mm. Uh, I, one time I was locked up in a uh, psych ward in Dayton, Ohio, suicide attempt. Not a, well, it wasn't, that wasn't even a suicide attempt. I was feeling really bad. I, I, my life had gone to shit. I had no friends. All my family had died. I couldn't make friends. It was like in a, I just moved to Ohio, and my neighbors weren't friendly, and I was having a lot of trouble. And uh, I wasn't suicidal, but I just needed to talk to somebody. I called the vet center. They gave me a number for some clinic that I found out was a place for druggies, okay? Uh, that's the whole purpose of this mental health thing was druggies off the street, that's where they wanted me to go for my help uh, because we can't get help, you know, from the civilian sector uh, with Medicare and TRICARE. Right. If you got Medicaid, you can see a counselor, not with TRICARE and Medicare. You can see a shrink who give you lots of meds, but not talk therapy. So uh, uh, my stepdaughter who lived there drove me to Dayton. I had her take me to the ER there. And I said, you go in first. And you tell them, I'm not suicidal, I just need to talk to somebody, just to vent a little bit. So they said, I'll come on in. They locked me up for three days. Jeez. You know, that emergency protective care being wow. pink slipped or whatever they call it in different states. Yeah. And, and while I was there, locked up for the three days, and it's always over the weekend when nothing's going on, right? Right. It seemed like everything happened on a Friday, and the VA shuts down on Saturday and Sunday. So the groups stop. You're just bored to death, you know, walking around a ward. At least there's other vets there you can talk to. But uh, one of the nurses there, I talked to her extensively, uh, and she had been an Air Force psych nurse and had gotten out of the Air Force. I don't think she was a retiree. She was too young. And she had worked for the VA for about a year, and she was telling me she couldn't believe how the VA operated. She had been there a year, and there had been no in-service. She said in the Air Force, every three months they had an in-service, you know, a continuing education right. where they would talk about, you know, the newest things in this area or patient medical, perf- you know, their relationships with the patient or whatever. VA, none of that. And mm. I got quite a story about, and she was looking for another job. I mean, yeah. the good people leave the VA. I don't know how it is anymore again, but in my day of going to the VA a lot, VA doctors did not have to pass state boards. Wow. Because they were government employees. Jeez. Okay. That's terrible. So so doctors that couldn't cut it as civilians went to work for the VA. Hmm. So, I mean... Uh, wow. My dogs got treated better at the their veterinarian than I can say I ever got treated at the VA. You know, it's like having an appointment. One of, my, one of, my, one of the times I got in to see an ENT... Uh, 
sitting out in the waiting room. Doctor comes out, and he was a part-timer. He worked over at Ohio University. Uh, what are, you know, University of Ohio? You, yeah, I was there for a while, and I'm not a school guy, so the University of Ohio or Ohio, whatever, the Buckeyes. Right. So, uh, OU. Yeah, he, oh, that's what it is. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he was a part-timer that worked in the, the hospital section there, ENT, came out of his little hallway, called my name, turned right around and walked back in. Now, I've had doctors, you know, wait till you get there, say, I'm doctor so-and-so, shake your hand, come on back. He just turned around and said, follow me, went into his office, and he was the first one that uh, just said, well, quit using, because I told him that I was using Afrin a lot, all my problems, and I had to use the Afrin to breathe. Uh, at night, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't eat, you know, Yeah. and he decided I was just addicted to Afrin, did not even examine me. Wow. Okay. Uh, the other thing was I have a thyroid condition, and he's ENT, and my primary care provider who set up the appointment told me I should have him check that too while I was there. So first thing he tells me is just quit using Afrin without even looking in my nose. And then I said, well, I was also supposed to talk to you about my thyroid. It's not on the referral. I can't talk to you about that. Jeez. Okay. Oh my gosh. So, uh, so every condition I had, luckily I had no really serious conditions. Yeah. Uh, I did have get uh, uh, acute pancreatitis, uh, and they took me to the VA in Denver at that time. First time I came down with it, I was in there for just under a week, uh, and all they did was keep me on fluids and nothing by mouth, right? So not couldn't even suck on an ice cube. Uh, everything was intravenous. So I was there for about five or six days, sent me home. I was home two days and it hit me again. So I was back in the hospital and, uh, I did have a gallbladder. They did take my gallbladder out, uh, laparoscopically. So, so that the VA did that for me and that went fairly smoothly. But I had another occasion where, uh, I was working on my house. I was building my house doing a lot of work every day, and I came down with a respiratory thing. And I had pneumonia as a kid, had bronchial problems. So I didn't think about it at first, but I wasn't getting better. Uh, had to drive myself three hours to the Denver VA. They diagnosed me with pneumonia, gave me some pills. I forget, it was like four or five pills, and sent me home to drive three hours home with, with pneumonia. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Wow. Jeez, uh, can't uh, make that up. I uh, had migraines. Yeah. Couldn't get anything for my migraines. Talk, kept talking about it. Uh, never did a, a a a CAT scan or anything to see if there was something organically wrong. Uh, throwing medicine at me that didn't work. At one time, they put me on mega doses of hydrocodone and acetaminophen mega doses. I was al already had been prescribed 500 milligrams of acetaminophen twice a day for slight pain I had in my knees. Mm. Uh, acetaminophen is a drastic poison for the body if you take too much of it. And uh, during that time, I had to be drug tested. Every, you know, they'd call me up. One time, I was in Pueblo, that's a two-hour drive, for an appointment. I was there for an appointment. 
When I got home from that appointment, the VA was on the line telling me I had to come in for a UA. So I had to drive two hours back to Pueblo to pee in a cup for which I did not get travel because it wasn't an appointment. Jeez. (laughs) Okay. You sound like those stories could go for hours. And and the hydrocodone didn't touch my migraines. Wow. It wasn't until years later uh, that I was seeing a doctor. They opened up a little clinic in Salida about an hour away, talking to a doctor through the, the telemed, and he prescribed uh, Imitrex to me, Sumatriptan. Okay. That's what uh, they put me on for my migraines. Okay, that's yeah. typical. And so when I got home, I'm big on checking things out, right? And found out that I had five contraindications for Sumatriptan because of medical problems my age. And one of the things it said was the first time, you know, I'm looking at Mayo Clinic or wherever you can look online that is a reliable source for meds. One of the first things it said is the first time this medication is administered, you must be in a hospital or doctor's office, Mm. okay? I guess it can cause heart complications or something. Okay. Uh, I don't know why, but I'm one hour from anywhere, and they sent me the meds in the mail. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Here, have fun with this. Yeah, and, and again- If he dies, he dies. It helps me. It kind of yeah. helps, but I could only get nine pills a month, and I was having ten headaches a month. Mm-hmm. And you and you take one to two pills for each headache would make it go away. But then I would suffer until I could get my next nine pills. Jeez, that's and, terrible. Uh, I mean, it just and recently found out that with my headaches and stuff, the VA never determined I got arthritis in my neck, oh. which was one of the problems. So again, civilian doctors fix my hemorrhoids. Civilian doctor, uh, uh, ENT guy, a surgeon up in uh, Colorado Springs, did major surgery on the inside of my nose so I can breathe now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, not life and death stuff. But when you're a veteran with PTSD, these little things are magnified. Yeah. Little distresses are magnified. When I left here... When I left, not here, but when I left Colorado to go to Ohio, I was on like 15 different meds. And a lot of them for side effects from meds they were giving me for stress and depression, as well as they were giving me meds for physical conditions like uh, gastro, you know, the GERD, or, uh, or uh, they, they diagnosed me with irritable bile syndrome. These were symptoms not from a physical condition, but stress and depression, which can cause all kinds of havoc in the body. So they were giving me meds for that. When you're taking 15 meds, there's no way for anybody to know what all of that at the same time is doing. There's no way to test that. Uh, Michael Jackson did his thing. Uh, I was doing uh, lorazepam and cyclobenzaprine. and when he when he died from his overdoses and stuff, made me really think. I went cold turkey on everything. Mm, Every, wow. All the crap the VA was giving me. I stopped taking all of it. Wow. Uh, I have a, I'm a hypothyroid, so I was still taking that supplement. But everything else I quit taking. 
My, I didn't have any symptoms without the meds. I jonesed real bad for about two weeks because of the, some of the meds I was taking. Right. Stopped taking the antidepressants. Also determined I'm one of those people, one of those rare people, when you give me an antidepressant, makes me more suicidal. Mm, yeah. So and that can happen with people, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, they say for you know younger people, there's a certain age limit, and us old guys aren't supposed to have that problem. But it became very clear empirically that the antidepressants made me more depressed. Mm. Yeah, there's something in younger people where it's like the full frontal, the frontal lobe hasn't fully formed. Yeah. It's just like with smoking weed. Mm-hmm. You like if you do that, you shouldn't do it before you're 25, really, yeah, because yeah, your frontal yeah. lobe because doesn't of stop de- developing. Right, grade. but that that's yeah. that's wild that that happened to you at an older age. Yeah, you know. And so when I'd go to it, I'd be having problems. I'd go to a shrink. First thing they'd want to do is write me because their thing is throw meds at you, throw a pill at it. Yeah. Uh, I was having, I've had insomnia forever. I would go sometimes three days and not shut my eyes. Wow. I would have sleep deprived psychosis coming on. And then I would crash for 24 hours. Uh, I would overdose on my lorazepam and cyclobenzaprine because that's the only sleep I was getting, but I eat it up and then I would go like two weeks with nothing mm-hmm. where I wouldn't sleep. I begged the VA to give me something to help me sleep. I got prescribed an antidepressant with a side effect of drowsiness. Oh, jeez. Uh, wow. Turns out to be something they had a whole warehouse full that they quit using as an antidepressant. When I checked it, I it didn't help me sleep. I got motor mouth, right? Mm. I got agitated. So I, again, I went online to find out the side effects. Yeah, one of the side effects was drowsiness, but the other one was agitation. And again, they'd sent me that from Denver to my home, you know, and and just here right and no follow-up uh i i got it when i was in columbus ohio for my migraines before i got to sumatriptan uh, they sent me to a neurologist who who put me on a pill that was supposed to be a preventative come back in six months mm-hmm. okay uh well damn maybe one pill isn't gonna work <laughs> maybe it takes two of these yeah but if you get appointments six months apart how long is it going to be before you get the adjustment that the medication does any good? Right. So are you going to figure that out? Yeah. Uh, I I once had a veteran tell me, another vet tell me, uh, the VA gives you pills that if you take them ex- as as prescribed, will kill you over a long period of take it at at over a long period of time but you can take them all all at once and die die quickly no <laughs> wow so Jeez, that's I, wild. I, I i uh had a facebook group for a while vets versus the va because i'm one of those that believes the va healthcare system should be absolutely abandoned all those all those useless professionals should have to go out and get real jobs mm-hmm and they should give me a card, like a Medicare card, that I can go to the doctor of my choice yeah. and get my care because that's the care I've gotten with TRICARE and Medicare. Yeah. They have that in Texas now. Yeah, In Texas, they have the VA Choice Program. Yeah. Uh, we get we, had, we had a nice clinic in Pueblo yeah. when I left. I went back. They had a whole new beautiful building. They put a lot of money into 
art and nice. It's it's like that golden toilet crap. Mm-hmm. They build good building, nice building. Same thing in Colorado Springs when I got there. Big, beautiful clinic. I went in. I was talking to one of the security guards who was a veteran and talking about, wow, what a, what a nice building they built. He said, yeah, but it's the same old bullshit inside. Mm. So where they put their money isn't into the health care. Right. It's into the, the facade yeah. that they look like they're giving care. Uh, they had a fairly decent hospital, VA hospital there in Denver. Yeah. That was right there in the medical centers for... I've the, seen it. I've heard that one's yeah, pretty good. On I had a buddy Street. who lived there, yeah. Uh, not too shabby, right? Uh, so they decided to build a new hospital out where the old Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center was. Went way over budget. For a while, they had to stop building on it. They didn't have any money to finish it. Unfortunately, they closed the old hospital before the new one was ready to open. Jeez. So wow. there was no health care for veterans. I used the example. It was like, okay, we're going to build a new bridge across the Mississippi. You got the new one half completed, and they tear down the old bridge. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Instead of keeping one facility open until they got the other one ready to go. Yeah. And when I left up there just a couple of months ago, they still had no inpatient services in that hospital. Jeez. They had, they had outpatient care. Those offices were open, but the hospital inpatient care was still not open. Wow. They were farming people out. Wow. Mike, that is pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah, there's some bad examples. Yeah. I, I, in, in my putting that Facebook, Facebook, Facebook group together, yeah. getting stories, because even what happens in one region isn't heard about in other regions right it's like uh the the recent thing down in new orleans new orleans with the tbi guys uh people resigning i mean it's a big scandal down there about all the guys that they intentionally let fall through the cracks right guys actually committing suicide behind tbi because they weren't getting treatment uh when you look at the whole ball of wax their medical malfeasance we estimated kill 40 to 45 veterans a day. Mm. Uh, that's suicide because they're not getting treatment and other problems. That's more than we've lost per day in any war we've been in. So the VA kills more veterans than are killed in the wars that were fought. Mm. Uh, I, I, I made a T-shirt that says the VA, helping veterans, what does it say, uh, Giving veterans a second chance to die for their country since 1931. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so yeah. so my attitude about the VA is very hostile. Yeah. I feel like I've had a, uh, 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 you know, this adverse, adversary relationship with them. Yeah. Uh, when I graduated from junior college, I was I was... In a pre-stabilization, I was getting 100%, uh, and they called it pre-stabilization because they didn't know how much renervation, how much use of my left hand I'd get back. I graduated from the junior college. I was going to the other coast of Florida, uh, starting at Florida Atlantic University. My last appointment at the VA was in St. Petersburg, where I had just a talk in, you know, how's it going with my doctor, 
I told him, okay, this will be my last appointment here. I'm going over to, to Fort Lauderdale. Saw him put a note in my medical records. He told me to let him know at the desk on the way out. So on the way out, turned back my file back in the way they did it then at the clerk. I told him, okay, this will be my last appointment here. I'm going to Fort Lauderdale. Saw him make a note. I'm over at Fort Lauderdale. I'd gone to school for a, a quarter, and it dropped out because I wasn't happy with my education, and I had PTSD, and went into business for myself. I opened up a tropical fish store. Counting on my disability kind of to carry me through, I got an appointment card to go to the VA back in St. Petersburg on the day after the appointment because it had gone to Alaska or someplace first. It had been misdirected. So they sent me an appointment for back on the other coast, and I didn't get it mm. uh, until after the appointment time. And I couldn't have gone anyway. Uh, the next thing I got was a notice that because I missed my appointment, I was being dropped from 100% to 30% oh, until I went to the, got an appointment uh, I don't know where the VA was down in Miami. And it took me like three months to get that appointment. Jeez. And and uh, then they stabilized me at 70%. So, so again, and, and this is where Congress helps. I've had this happen to me twice where the VA has screwed over me financially wise. Mm. Uh, first, I went to my veteran service officer, the county veteran service officer, to try to file a complaint. And he started telling me what he was going to give me and what, you know, I practically went across the deck, deck, the desk at him because I said, I'm getting what the, what was due to me by act of Congress. You're not giving me anything. Yeah. Wrong way to approach it. <laughs> uh, but then I wrote out a detailed letter to my congressman, mm -hmm. you know, saying, you know, I thought I should get that back pay that that was not justified, had all the evidence, had the everything I needed, my letter back from the congressman was, we checked with the VA, basically it said, we checked with the VA, they said you're wrong, so that's it. Happened the same thing a few years back in Colorado when mm. the VA messed up, and I went without disability for two months. They screwed up, thought they overpaid me $5,000, and took it all at once out of two checks, one whole check, and then most of the next one, and I was homeless for two months. Jeez. I wasn't out on the street, but I was living in a little room in the winter that had no heat about the size of a good-sized walk-in closet with my three dogs. Wow. Uh, I had no money for food. Mm. And uh, that's when I, I, I reached out to the VFW. I'm a life member. I reached out to Wounded Warriors. I reached out to Homefront Cares and several other organizations, and the I'd call them up. First, qu first question they asked me, what air veteran are you? Vietnam. Oh, we only help post-9-11 veterans, including wounded warriors. I'm a damn wounded warrior, mm -hmm. and I see that as discrimination. First place, there's not many Vietnam veterans left to, to suck up whatever resources are available now. And we sure to hell didn't get anything back then. Yeah. And, and I think it's awful ballsy 
for these these organizations that are supposed to help all veterans all of a, all of a sudden saying unless you're a post 9/11 veteran we don't care about you and that's not only vietnam that's granada that's what kosovo would be thrown in there that's we've had some other little skirmishes right. around yeah. that can't get help from these agencies because they're not post 9/11 veterans yeah uh, so that, that was very discouraging for me. I got real hostile about that. Uh, I can only imagine. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was like, uh, I did have a VFW guy. Finally, I was talking about, I needed dog food, right. For my dogs. And, uh, he said, well, we won't give you the money, but if you meet me at such and such a, a grocery store and I wasn't even asking for a, I said, I just need a loan. You know, if, if you can lend me a couple of hundred dollars to the VA starts paying me again, I'll be happy. Uh, I was told, meet them at such and such a grocery store down the street from where I lived, and he would buy my dog food for me. I guess he thought I was going to use it, the money for drugs or something. Jeez. I went down to the grocery store. He never showed up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. That's pathetic. Yeah, so... So Vietnam veterans, uh, you know, they, uh, who was it? Uh, the journalist, the TV guy that, that, that wrote the, the greatest generation, uh, he's retired now. He was well known. I'll think of his name again after you leave, but he, he's the one that labeled world war two vets, the greatest generation. Uh, all in all, when you look at World War II, that was a country effort. Everybody was involved, whether you were overseas or you were, you were the, the uh, girl, you know, riveting the, the planes together or building the tanks or the ammo. Uh, even if you weren't involved in the defense effort, there was rationing of sugar, rubber. So everybody was affected by World War II. Right. Vietnam was not that way. Yeah. Right. And uh, and then so I so that is the greatest generation, the way the country pulled together. I refer to us, the Vietnam veterans, as the disparaged generation. And that disparagement continues to this day. And people don't realize that. And I've talked to younger vets, your generation vets, who don't believe me when I tell them about our homecoming. Mm. I, I can tell you an incident. Yeah. Uh, we flew standby, right? And normally we got into coach. That was okay, you know. I never got bumped. I always got a seat. Uh, one time flying from Washington, D.C., it might have been when I was going home on leave for convalescent. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm in my greens, got all my shit on, and I've got a weird-looking brace on my left hand, keeping my hand from clawing up, all handmade in one of their shops back there with rubber bands on it. it. It was really weird looking, very obvious. They didn't have a seat in coach. Mm-hmm. And what brought this up, I don't know if you've seen the money movie, a true story about the, the guy being escorted back to his hometown and the officer is with yes, him. Yes. Yes. I know what okay. you're talking about. Yeah. And, and the way Woody I'm, Harrelson. And, yeah. I, and, I forget the name of awesome movie. Yeah. Great, great movie. Me and my dad watched that. But, but the way the, the guys were treated, they get on the airplane, you know, that officer gets on the airplane and he's treated with dignity, yes. treated with respect, treated with, with, uh, gratitude. Okay. So I, 
I'm, my name is called, standby, so I go up there. They didn't have a seat in coach, but I got to fly first class. So I'm sitting up there with all the rich people who are very snobbish. It's much more fun to fly in coach. But the thing was that they started doing the meals, right? And the, the, the stewardess, the flight attendant comes by and said, well, you're standby. You should be flying coach, so you get a coach meal. Oh, my God! So everybody around me is eating steak and lobster. Wow. <laughs> and I have a ham sandwich. Jeez. So, I mean, in general, yeah. in general, we were treated like crap. And that was a big shock after leaving the hospital where we had those field trips and tr people were treating us good. So, in a way, I had my parade, which you couldn't have had for Vietnam anyway because we came back at so many different times so many different times there would have been no way to have that parade for us but uh but that general feeling about veterans there was just that that we were we were just scum mm. i mean it was and uh and i like to say because of my decorations and what i did that i was a really good soldier in america's least popular war you know, bad soldiers in a popular war get treated better than good soldiers in a non-popular war. That's definitely the truth. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I want to tell you that as a younger generation brother and, you know, to any of the guys that said they didn't believe your stories from my generation, shame on them. <laughs> I would I would punch that dude in the face. If I saw that, because that is disgusting and despicable, and nobody should make you feel that way. Well, well, the way it is, Tim, is that we all know about the wannabes, the posers, yeah, and uh, the the wall of shame. And uh, I've met some personally. Everybody's seen some of these guys, you know, that they're in uniform and they got sergeant major stripes and they got ribbons mixed with medals and you know they've got every qualification you know, they're halo and they're scuba and all this crap seal and, team 6 <laughs> alpha force yeah i mean and and <clears throat> i've got pictures of them on my computer because uh when i was on facebook again we shared a lot of this stuff one guy we tracked down we mm. actually tracked down wow uh, I, I found him through people finder i had an idea what town he was in and then found out he had moved to Louisiana and sent him a letter yeah. and found his address down there and hopefully scared the shit out of him because I told him we were coming for him. <laughs> but but when you get the posers, when you get the guys out there, and I just started a, 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 a veterans group here in New Mexico up in Clovis. Uh, because of the COVID thing, there were only four other guys there. Out of the four, one was a poser. Mm. Already I ran into wow. one here. But the problem is, for those of us where the real deal, we hate to talk to people and say, yeah, I was in special forces, I did special ops, I did black ops, because the assumption is, oh, here's another poser. <laughs> so, so you know what I I'm mean? I'm not going to lie. My head does kind of go there sometimes when somebody tells me they've done some crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean, my head, I mean, even as believable, I've, you know, I've obviously told some pretty incredible stories through the project, but yeah. even my head goes there sometimes. Yeah. Like, well, this, this dude has so many qualifications. That doesn't even seem because you've seen so much stolen valor out there. Uh, yeah, sure. th well, that's the thing. So, so those of us that did it, mm -hmm. 
don't want to talk about it, not because we're not proud of what we did, right? But we want to be labeled a poser, and yeah. that's why uh, uh, I put together. You know, I have a calling card. I'll have to give you one. Yeah. Uh, that's got all my stuff on it. I got all my decorations, and I built a website. Uh, I've seen it. Yeah, you've seen part of my website. It's all crappy now because I started building that in 2000, and turned out to be a lot of work to build it. I didn't have anybody to beta test it, and to keep it up is a pain in the ass, and it wasn't that many visitors anyway. But I built that so that I, if somebody ever questioned me, I can say, go to trickymisfit.com, You'll see me, you'll see my silver star, you know, everything is there only because of that. Mm. By the way, Tricky Misfit. Yeah. You like that? Yeah, I do that like that. That was the call sign on my 18th. I'm glad you brought that up on here so that people <laughs> yeah. can go visit the website. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, that's, I mean, that's where that came from is uh, it's my tribute to my A-team because that was our call sign. Man. And I also feel I'm a misfit. I'm a little tricky. So. <laughs> You're tricky. You are a misfit. And you've got a few college degrees. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got a, a bachelor's degree in behavioral science and a master's degree in uh, human communication. Wow, man. Well, you've lived quite the life and so many jobs after, too, right? And doing just so well, many yeah, different things. As, as a Rolling Stone, as a Vietnam veteran, and also having a little disability coming in, made me very independent. Mm. Uh, until I went to work for the post office, uh, after, that was in 84, from 1971, when I got out, went to college, got my AA in a hurry, started my bachelor's degree, didn't finish that up for 10 years. Mm. Okay, so, and But I always worked. I've, I've never just set back on my, my disability and I would take any job I could get. So I, I have a vast range of experiences. Uh, but my longest job before I went, uh, my longest job was 18 months with the post office. Before that, I had an eighth month stretch. I've had jobs that lasted as short as three hours. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, but it was like that rolling stone. I was always moving. I worked up in uh, the upper peninsula of Michigan. I've worked down in Florida, Texas, Colorado, constantly moving. Uh, my second wife was a Vietnam veteran. Oh, wow. Okay. Talk about a marriage made in hell. <laughs> uh, I, I met her. Back at Four Door, oh. she was a Vietnamese linguist, mm -hmm. and her and a couple other wax, they were wax back then, uh, came out to the sport parachute club to learn to skydive. So uh, that's kind of how I met, that is not kind of, that's how I met her. Uh, and let's let's face it, she was a, a young spec four, and I was a Green Beret and, and big man on campus when mm -hmm. it came to skydiving, so we kind of hit it off. She was in Vietnam. A lot of the guys in the club at that time, we all got to Vietnam at the same time. And uh, and I was separated. Didn't think my, my first marriage was going to last, but I was still married. Right after I got home, uh, I thought I was going to reconcile with my first wife, but I got thrown out of the house. She didn't want me anymore. And I've never been alone, right? And I'm not good at dating, so uh, so I was back in touch with her, and she was getting out of the Army, so she came back, and we got married. 
And we were married for eight years before PTSD was recognized. Uh, well, I, I kind of hooked up. Not, I met her again. She, she's still in Pueblo and ran into her at the VA, as a matter of fact, in Pueblo. And we got talking. And uh, she went back into the reserves, the Air Force Reserves, and had to get a security clearance. And she said, you son of a bitch. She said, I had to remember every address we lived at. And we must have moved 30 times in the time we were married. Wow. But, uh, I mean, we weren't compatible, but we hung together because we were both Vietnam veterans. And she was one of the few women in Vietnam that wasn't medical. She was a, a interpreter translator uh, down in Saigon. Wow. Uh, so I mean, even we didn't talk about we didn't talk about Vietnam and wow. we were married. Man. Well, Mike, I mean, uh, you've certainly lived an incredibly rich life, and uh, it's it's terrible the way that you guys got treated when you got back. But I'm glad that you're finally getting recognized for the things you've done. Yeah, yeah you deserve uh, between that. the 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 heritage uh, arsenal up in Colorado Springs, who is a uh, uh, an army museum, uh, Colonel Lynn that runs up there, an awesome guy. And you got to go there sometime. Yeah. We'll check it out because the, I the go to Colorado quite a bit. The collection he has, I'll give you his contact information. The collection he has will blow your mind away. Okay. I mean, I don't want to get into it now, but, but he just loves this stuff. And, uh, he puts displays up around Colorado Springs and in other areas and has been working hard on the U S army museum, which was just opened up at Fort Belvoir. I think it is. Yeah. But he was, he was, a he's a big participant in that. And, 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 uh, getting to be, you know, in my mid seventies now turning 76 and not having anybody to give my stuff to, uh, I knew after I died, all of my memorabilia would end up in a dumpster someplace. And, uh, well, be quiet. My, <laughs> my wife's here. <laughs> we, won't, we won't give her a number. <laughs> but let's just say she's had as many husbands as I've had wives. Uh, stable relationships are hard when you got PTSD, let's face it. You yeah. know, that emotional distancing, the burst of anger, on you know, the we call it going going ballistic or going into combat mode, and then you make an ass out of yourself and then feel guilty and embarrassed. But anyway, I, I uh, my consular hooked me up with Colonel Lynn, and I donated everything, all of my memorabilia. He's got all my orders I saved, mm -hmm. every document, all my pictures, uh, all my, and he, he gave me back uh, high-definition copies of everything and made an awesome display for me. I think you saw the video. I did, you, yes, you I did. You saw that yep. video that's on YouTube. The videos are on and YouTube. And then he's done a couple of interviews with me. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's so important just for me, but that people know about SOG and know about the real courage that some, some Americans have to do that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but well, I've I, certainly seen it in the last couple of years, especially every, a lot of people, especially in our community and the Iraq yeah. Afghanistan side have really been talking about Mac V SOG. Yeah. And I've certainly seen that come out a yeah. lot lately. Well, strangely enough, I've run into a few people who know about us, mm -hmm. although it's very rare. I was in a McDonald's in Canyon City, a small town in Colorado one day, and I had a Mac V. Sog hat on. And this teenager walks over to me and says, you were part of Sog? And I said, yeah. 
He said, my granddad talks about you guys all the time. He was a spad pilot and crashed in Laos and Sog, Sog pulled him out. Wow. Like, wow. You know what? That's what, so cool. That, that's weird. That's but, amazing. But but I'll say we talk about, you know, I'm 75, fishing 76. I know my clock's running down. I'm one of the, you know, at my age, you kind of, so you see it on the news. Somebody dies at 80. You say, well, if I make it that long, that's five more years. And the reality is the longer you live, the shorter your year is. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, when you're five years old, one year is 20%, what would that be? 20% of your life, right? right? Am I doing the math? So that's 20% of your life. When you're 70, 75 years old, one year yeah, you know, mm-hmm. so the time and the way you feel that time, yeah, is very, the way you yeah. experience that time speeds up as you get older and you start thinking about your mortality. I mean, I've been borrowed living on borrowed time since 70, 1970, August 1970, and I've come to grips with my mortality, but now it's coming around the corner and you start thinking about that. But nobody wants to die. But nobody, you can't live forever overpopulation. You know, you got to accept that death is a part of life. Uh, but what I think about now is, yeah, I'm going to die at some point in the future, and it's going to be pretty quick in my time sense. But I can't complain because, you know, uh, I've skydived, I've done all kinds of work, I have trophies for racing cars, I own two sailboats. <laughs> Uh, I've lived all over the country. I've met all kinds of people. I've had wonderful experiences. You were I've, part of one of the most, uh, you were part of the most elite military organization this world's probably ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the we were so highly classified at that time and the work we did, uh, as, as I mentioned to you earlier, of the guys that ran recon, 99% of us were either killed, wounded, captured, Oh, I mean, and guys kept going back with that attitude, I can do it, or the job is important enough if I get killed, because what we were doing was finding out what was happening in Laos, which Congress said we couldn't do. And if you don't know what's going on in the border on the other side, and you had the situation, you know, we have jurisdictions for police. Highway patrols chasing you. If you can get across that state line, you're safe. Well, the VC, the NVA, could come into South Vietnam, kick ass, and run cross border into Laos or Cambodia. We couldn't touch them. Yeah. They could mass troops in Laos unless we were there finding out what was going on, and we were there to rescue pilots. Uh, I mean, we did a lot of missions. We did a lot of good, and that was what it was all about. Yeah. It wasn't for the glory. We never thought about that kind of stuff. Is what we were doing was saving lives. And Major Plaster, uh, at the end of the of the documentary, and it's in our, our presidential unit citation, it also states, you should read that sometime. Oh, I will. That the 200 guys we had running recon on a regular basis in Laos and Cambodia, they, they used... 50,000 troops in that area against us. And so that's the largest economy of force in the world that's ever been seen. 50,000 troops that weren't fighting in South Vietnam 
just to contain the recon teams who are poking them in the ass every day. <laughs> and you were a part of that poking. <laughs> and we were part of that poking. Yeah. The NVA had one company of airborne up in Hanoi, and when they found out what we were doing, they trained them in counter-recon. Mm. And they were trained better in counter-recon than we were in recon. Mm. Uh, because they did not like us on their turf. They did not like us blowing up convoys on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Yeah, uh, Plaster did one of those missions, really hairy mission. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, we can be proud of what we did. It was an important job. It wasn't for the glory. It was what needed to be done to win the war and to save other American lives. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, or allied lives, not just Americans. Yeah. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This was certainly a good one. I think we did about four hours. Is so. that how long we've been here? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's been longer than that because I think we started around noon and it's eight. Well, we took a break for a we little bit. We took a little yeah. break. Yeah. yeah. So but, we uh, did about four, about four and a half. Hours. Yeah. Uh, I can see you're about to nod out here. Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, no, my eyes are actually dry. I've got contacts in. Oh, you so. got, is that what's yeah. doing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Allergies. <laughs> I'm not used to this environment because Texas. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> but man, I appreciate it. it's been riveting yeah. so thank you well, so much i appreciate you doing this these stories somebody has to remember this yeah. i mean we know about merrill's marauders and and you know they talk about bella wood and you know this stuff is part of history but nobody knows about caisson nobody knows about long Bay getting overrun the special forces a camps uh nobody knows about the big battles in uh of course, We Were Soldiers is an extra, you know, an excellent movie that was yeah. done. But, but there's not enough out there about it. Yeah, uh, we are not remembered like the older vets. Yeah. And I think, I think these kinds of projects uh, are, are what's really important. I've done, I've done one of these interviews by a young college girl. What a waste. You know, it was supposed to be some national archives. With you, another veteran, you actually get to get into uh, what, what, what it's all about. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I, I, I've seen such a, you know, and I, not, I don't say this to trash other people's work, but I've seen such a lacking quality. I, mean, I was talking to one of my friends when I had one of my art exhibits, and he said, you know, he's another veteran artist who's really talented, and he said, we need more veteran artists. And I said, no, we don't. We need more great veteran artists yeah that's what we need i don't want crappy storytelling for guys like you yeah that went out and did the real thing you guys deserve the best looking best sounding uh you know hardest hitting digital media out there and that's what we're trying to do with the project well even the soa special operations associated at our reunion every year in las vegas uh, we have the organization, but we don't have enough people to meet, <laughs> you know, have chapters yeah. around the world. Uh, so we get together every year and uh, for five days in Las Vegas. Uh, and it, it's really, a, you know, the reunion for us. And, of course, uh, last reunion I lost to, went to, we had lost 60 members that year. Because we're getting old and, and dying off. And they're bringing in younger special ops guys now, trying to get them involved. But they have their video history project, and I've been avoiding it. And the last time I went, I finally said, I'm going to do this. So I had my appointment. I went up to the room, young lady doing it. She's been doing this project forever. Uh, we just bullshitted for, for, a couple, for an hour, uh, 
apparently I'm an interesting person to talk to and never got into my military experience. Okay. Uh, She knows all about my childhood and my college experiences, (laughs) all of this stuff. And very basically about getting into the army, but never talked about one of my operations. Wow. And I had some pretty hairy operations as a recon team leader. Yeah. I think we did pretty well on this one. Yeah, excellent, yeah. excellent. And obviously, we could talk another four hours if, we, <laughs> if you had the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or if your wife had the time. <laughs> yeah. She's about to kick me out. <laughs> well, I appreciate you, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's wonderful to have you yeah. as part of the project. Yeah, thank you, sir. appreciate doing it. All right, and for all you that are listening out there, don't forget, our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.